Hello, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today, our guest is Winona Quigley of Green Matters Natural Dye Company. In just a moment, Winona will be with us. And in the meantime, remember that you can reach us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, any comments, especially if you'd like to be our guest and you're using business as a force for good on the planet. This show is a production of KBMF 102.5. Daniel Hogan is in the studio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. In just a moment, we'll be back with Winona. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and today our guest is Winona Quigley of Green Matters Natural Dye Company. Hi, Winona. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for doing this and sharing your story with our listeners and myself, of course. I always feel like I'm so lucky to get to talk to all the wonderful people out there on the planet who really have some beautiful visions. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about Green Matters Natural Dye Company and uh, what it is that you do there? Of course. Uh, So I'm the CEO and co-founder of Green Matters Natural Dye Company. We are an industrial dye house that processes only plant-based dyes uh, for uh, businesses and fashion uh, and soft product brands that are looking for a greener solution to wet processing. Synthetic dyes are the second largest polluter of global waterways. And uh, in the past few years, a metric measured that 9 trillion gallons of polluted water are being dumped into rivers, lakes, and oceans every year. And so we set out to find a solution to offer to businesses that need color, but don't want to contribute to that problem. So while we are still a small business, uh, we are growing and uh, we're hoping to not only offer our services to brands, but also educate people who interact with soft goods, which is all of us, about the impact that garments and textiles have on the environment and how, you know, a little bit more mindfulness on the end of the consumer can help push companies to to do better and uh, offer something that's better for the planet. And you have a very interesting history and background. Can you share that a little bit with our listeners and how that all relates to being the founder and CEO of Green Matters? Of course, yeah. I... So I started Green Matters while I was still a student and was quite young with absolutely no experience running a business. I started my research in plant dyes in 2013 um, in a a soup pot in my Manhattan kitchen and had started exploring it initially for a school project um, while I was a student at Parsons, the new school for design. But really, after just dyeing a few swatches in things like onion skins and avocado pits and things like that, that were easy to access, just developed this fascination with the the color that nature has to offer, not only in the beautiful displays that plants make, but also in what they have to offer in terms of dye and in the things that we can't see in plants. So 
I really start to explore that much to the chagrin of my professors who wanted me to pursue um, a career, a traditional career in fashion design and focusing more on, you know, designing flats and designing clothing to send tech packs to uh, factories overseas. Um, so I spent about two years developing that research and in 2015 started to pursue uh, natural dyes uh, as a business. Um, initially, we had thought it was going to be a clothing line, but a mentor really early on convinced me that the, the world didn't need another clothing line, but mm-hmm. that natural dye, that we needed a dye house that was able to provide a solution to a problem that I was trying to solve. So mm-hmm. uh, before even launching, we pivoted to being a, a business facing dye house. And that was very, very small, small scale. We were dying in soup pots. We eventually graduated to beer kettles, but still dying by hand, very small projects. And learned a lot along the way. Every dye bath we did was a learning experience. And it's something that I always say is that mistakes are actually some of the most important information that you have. So, you know, I was developing this in those first two years of research. I was also doing internships at fashion companies, which was really helpful just to get a sense of how the industry interacts with textile vendors. And so that was really useful information. Uh, But uh, the funny part about my kind of my roots and my origin is that I have this experience in the fashion world and education in the fashion world, but there's so much about what running, what ultimately became a factory that you don't learn in in school, which is, you know, things surrounding logistics. It's great if you can dye something, but not great if you can't figure out how to get it to your client. So yeah, lots of learning along the way and trying to translate my knowledge about the fashion industry into running a, a factory. In in 2017, we we were still buying kettles, but we got the opportunity to purchase industrial garment dye machines. So what that meant is that we were able to dye larger dye lots at one time, items being dyed together. They were man, you know, automatically agitated, so nobody's dyeing things by hand anymore, things like that. So we bought our first three machines in 2017, and those were two smaller machines that dye about three and 10 pounds of fiber each. And then our larger machine, uh, which was 100 pounds of fiber. So it really changed the game for us. And it meant that we could work with uh, different types of clients and new clients. And we've since then expanded our fleet that we have more machines and larger machines than that. So it feels like a long time and a short time. Uh, we're almost seven years old. We'll turn seven in this July. Hmm. Yes, time has a way of flying by. <laughs> I can it does, to this and being very slow. Yes, it, you know, especially when your hair is on fire, as I like to say. <laughs> and you're exactly, running, exactly. And, and you're running, you're bootstrapping and running a company. Um, I'm just curious about Parsons. Can you tell our listeners and, and myself a little bit about your experience there and why you decided to go to Parsons School of Design? Well, I think like most young adults trying to figure out their path and choosing higher education, I definitely had a glamorized vision of what the fashion industry was like. Um, I, you know, as a teenager, I was reading fashion magazines like Vogue and I, yeah, I was certainly enamored by glossy images of beautiful people wearing beautiful clothing and really just wanted an outlet for creativity. And I think that as most people find out when they go to fashion school, the industry is not anywhere near as glamorous as you think. 
in part just like what it takes to produce a collection and how fast companies are trying to pump out clothing right now, but also the impact that it has on its workers and the environment. I, I think in the Rana Plaza collapse in 2013 was a big wake-up call for a lot of people in the industry. And I was, you know, still a student at that time. And it just really woke me up to like that the industry is not glamorous at all. There's nothing glamorous about it. There are people dying, you know, there's a huge environmental impact. And I think that that was a big turning point for me in terms of how I viewed the fashion industry and how I saw my part in it. And the wonderful thing about Parsons is that they do have an immense focus on sustainability. I think, you know, even since I've left the school, they have programs that are entirely focused on sustainability and aren't necessarily pushing students to focus just on design, but are now pushing students to focus more on innovative solutions beyond just designing the clothing, because that's only a small part of garment production. So, yeah, I, I think that for people who are interested in exploring innovative solutions, Parsons is wonderful. That said, it's, I was very fortunate to have grants and scholarships to go, but it's not a cheap school to go to either. So it's you know a little bit limited in terms of who is able to attend and who's able to have access to those resources. So it's, it's wonderful, but it's also very exclusive, which um, isn't <laughs> exclusive things aren't always helpful for change. At what point did you know that you were going to pursue this as a career? And was there, were there mentors early on, high school and before? You know, what did your parents think about you going to Parsons? Um, well, uh, by a single mother and my grandparents. And to be honest, my mom, it wasn't about, you know, she was just like, you're not moving to New York City. Uh, but... <laughs> That said, I, I know she's very proud of me. And after after graduating, I actually moved back to my hometown to start the business in part because the commercial real estate is better here than New York for operating the type of business we have. But also just to have the support both of my family and the agricultural community to, plan, to found a business like this. But I think, you know, as as a high school student, my my family realized I was very creative and really helped push me in the direction that I needed to go to kind of harness that creativity. I left a public high school when I was about 15 to do online schooling with a, an arts program in person twice a week. And just my family's support and helping me tra- make that transition was you know, really important because it was a, an immense privilege to be able to do that. And I think that the, the arts program that I was a part of they really helped me with portfolio development to get into Parsons and then getting to Parsons, having that exposure to resources, focusing on sustainability is probably what pushed me closer to natural dyes. So I, you know, there's kind of this chain of events that I'm really thankful for. And I was really thankful that my, you know, when I did decide to start a business, my family was like really supportive. And, you know, I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably do get pushback from their loved ones for not pursuing a traditional career. And I didn't, I didn't experience that. I've had immense support and support the whole way. When COVID hit, obviously a lot of people had their jobs taken away or work was limited. And my mom started working for my business and she still does Mm part-time. And so it's really, it's really wonderful how the support has just never ended. But in terms of mentors I've had while we were developing the business in 2015, when we first launched the business, um, we 
came in contact with a man named Charles, um, who is still a part of our team and still um, mentors us and still helps us. But he was the one that said to me, like, why, why do you want to do this? What's the reason you want to do this for? And I said, I want to dye things. And he goes, well, you're going to start a clothing brand. You're going to spend 90% of your time selling. So if you want to dye, I think you should start a dye house. And he's just been an amazing support along the way. And also just really able to understand me, uh, even though we're from very different backgrounds. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does indeed. And you mentioned your hometown. Where are you based? And how do you see that you're impacting your community? And, you know, obviously it's a vice, vice versa thing as well, because you're getting so much support. So we are uh, currently located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, right in the heart of Amish country. Uh, this is where I grew up uh, and I moved, I did move to New York for school, but moved back in part to start the business from home. But we, after getting more developed, we moved into a converted dairy farm here in Lancaster. And it's a resource that I, I don't think I appreciated until being here for a few years because we're just, the location that we're in is just so perfect for what we're doing. So the building we're in is on a farm and we rent a portion of the a warehouse space here that I think the 70s to the 90s was in a, like an enormous dairy farm. And my landlord, uh, who, who was Amish, converted the building so that the, there's a huge chamber underneath the building that was u- previously used as a manure chute for the dairy cows. And he, uh, in the 1990s, converted that to be a rainwater cistern. So it meant cleaning it out, it meant relining it. Um, and so what it means is that all of the rain captured from the roof goes down several spouts into the 60,000 gallon cistern under our studio and that we're able to use that rainwater for dyeing, which is uh, great in terms of sustainable resources, but also really great because with natural dye, you want to work with water that has as few impurities as possible. So working with hard water isn't great for some dyes. Uh, working, you know, working with municipal water wouldn't be great either because the, there's like certain additives that are put in the water that would affect the, the color outcome. So you know, that's just one way that being in an agricultural community has really been wonderful for us. And not just the building that we're in, but also the the types of contractors that we need to keep running. For example, we have an amazing motor mechanic who I think most of the work he does is on, again, on dairy farms and farm equipment, but his knowledge translates very seamlessly to the motors on our machines and the other components of our dye machines. So, you know, it's really, really wonderful to have access to that resource uh, and other resources locally. We had to do some repairs on one of our machines recently, and uh, the person doing the repairs was able to run down the street and go to an industrial irrigation store uh, and buy an irrigation supplies that fit onto our machines. So it's kind of an odd thing that I wouldn't have expected until I was in the position to need to find these resources. But we you know, the, the community is able to support us immensely in terms of the the contractors, the type of property we have, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, you know, with our team, we have the people who work for us are all local, and everyone here is very creative and has either degrees in creative fields or have, you know, skills that maybe would be hard to apply at job, other jobs locally. And so um, it has been really wonderful to find people who definitely never worked in a dye house before, but 
it came to us with a set of skills that ended up being really well applied to what we're doing. And so it's been really great to uh, hire a, you know, a team of local women and non-binary people who have the set of skills that one needs to work on a growing business that is doing a service that really no one else is doing right now. Amazing. Amazing. And we're going to take our break here. We'll be right back in just a moment with Winona Quigley of Green Matters Natural Dye Company. This is Heartstock. back to Heartstock Radio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and we're speaking with Winona Quigley of Green Matters Natural Dye Company. And I'm just wrapping my head around the visions that I have of your facility. And it sounds like a whole lot of messy fun. And, you know, where we are currently, it's so exciting to hear that you're an early adapter, and so are your clients. So as time has gone by, I'm just wondering about the materials that you're dyeing. Where are they coming from? And how are your clients managing to find materials that are suitable and kind of fit into the whole eco realm? That's a really good question. And it's it's extremely varied. And there is a lot in the textile world that's not perfect in terms of sustainability. So uh, the fibers we're working with are totally sourced by our clients. So we don't provide any of the fabrics, but it's interesting to see, you know, everyone has a different mission or, or different values that are really important to them. So for some people, it's, you know, getting a certain type of sustainable fiber, but it's not able to be sourced in the U.S. And so they're importing it from overseas, whereas other clients are, only using what's available domestically. So it's a real mix depending on what what our clients' values are. Uh, right now, we're primarily focused on garment dyeing. So whatever our client is dyeing needs to arrive to us fully sewn. We're not doing as much. We used to do a lot of yarn to our manufacturing their garments overseas. And they you know, then send them to our dye studio to be dyed before going to their distributor to be sold. And you know, those clients are also the same clients that in 2020, when there was enor- you know, enormous supply chain disruption, we're coming to us and saying, you know, our factories are shut down overseas and we have unsold inventory that we want to die so that we can turn it around and make it into a new product. And, you know, that facilitated some new relationships and some existing relationships with customers that were just trying to use their unsold inventory. And it actually, you know, usually went pretty well. And it's now a, you know, a core part of their relationship with us is sending us things that didn't sell in a certain color way. Um, and so they want to change the color way and make it more saleable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, some things are being imported. Some projects are imported materials and then they're sewn here in the U.S. and then sent to us. And then, you know, we have some clients who are really dedicated to domestic production and are knitting the fabric here or we knitting or weaving the fabric here in the U.S., um, cutting and sewing it here. And sending it to us to be dyed, um, which is really incredible because that 
not only reduces the pollution output of an individual garment, but you're also reducing the carbon footprint because it's not being sent to multiple different countries for finishings or having to be shipped on ocean freight or anything like that. So it's pretty variable. One of our clients, we started working with Stitch Fix in 2020, and they have a new line that is called, it's called Moten Made, and it is manufactured here in Pennsylvania. They purchased a, a knitting factory in Reading, PA, as well as a cut and sew factory, which is in the, um, I think down the street or nearby. And so they are importing the yarns, some of its recycled cottons or some recycled materials, and um, some of its hemp, which uh, a lot of people are really interested in, in right now in terms of sustainable textiles. But they're knitting the, you know, mostly Jersey fabrics here in Pennsylvania and cutting and sewing it here in Pennsylvania and sending it to us to be dyed here in Pennsylvania, which is, you know, really exciting to just to see that industry pop back up. It's a lot of textile and sewing jobs went overseas. And it's something I think about a lot because my great grandmother, who was around a lot when I was really small and took care of me, especially because I had a single mother, she worked in a sewing factory local here in Lancaster her whole life. And uh, around retirement was when that factory closed and all those jobs went overseas. So seeing businesses that are investing in those domestic textile jobs, it just really encourages me. And it's just really exciting to see that we're recreating this, this network of, of different businesses and kind of relearning how to manufacture materials and garments here in the U.S. again. And what was the name of the company you said Moten made with a T? Um, oh, I'm not going to spell it correctly. I'm just going to quickly look it up so I it say it right. So I'm just, yeah, I, I want to make sure we steer our listeners in the right direction here. It's M-O-H-N-T-O-N, made. And it is a brand that's owned by Stitch Fix, which um, listeners might be familiar with. They're a a pretty big fashion company. Yep. Stitch Fix is awesome. So Moten Made, that's fascinating. And I'm wondering from the other side, where do you get your materials from to create the dyes? That's pretty variable as well. So um, some of our dyes are imported uh, and they come to us in the form of milled down extracts. So you might get a jar of what looks like colored powder, but is um, extracted matter root. So some of those dyes we're importing, for example, some of our matter root or indigo is coming from India, but we also have some domestic suppliers as well. Uh, there's a really wonderful dye company called Stony Creek Colors, and they are growing organic indigo in Tennessee. Um, and I, I think they might have fields in other states as well. I'm not sure. But it's been really exciting to offer a dye that's domestically sourced. And they have you know, some other dyes that they offer that we're exploring as well, including like a walnut paste. So that's been really exciting uh, to, to build that relationship and offer domestic dyes to our clients. Another exciting source of dye is waste streams. So far, the biggest one that we offer as part of our service is avocado pits, which make like a light pink dye. And our, well, it took a little bit of time to get that waste stream sorted out. It's not easy to get people to give you their trash, it turns out. Um, (laughs) You know, avocado pits have been a really wonderful source of dye. And so that it does require a little more work on our part in terms of not only collecting it, but having to wash it and store it uh, and then extract the dye from the pits, which in basic terms is making like a really hot soup of avocado pits, which uh, makes like a really thick dye dye concentrate, which we add to our dye machines. 
And we're, we are trying to explore other waste streams that we can introduce to our dye services, like onion skins um, or pomegranate rinds, for example, make, make a dye. But it is, it, it has improved not easy to get our hands on something that people are throwing away in part because I, I think the people who, you know, the industry and the business that has this waste doesn't always understand uh, what we're using it for or why we're using it. But avocado pits have proved a little bit easier to get our hands on working with local cafes. If you explain what you're doing, they're actually kind of excited to help and local cafes, local restaurants. We actually have a, a partnership with Chipotle Mexican Grill where we use the avocado pits left over from their restaurant locations to dye a merch line for them. Uh, it's called Chipotle Goods. Uh, and that's been really exciting in part because of the scale that we're doing it. It's um, for us, they're pretty large projects and exciting that we're, we were actually able to collect enough avocado pits to do that. And that we are continuing, continually collecting. They often will release and drop a product on their Instagram. Um, so, and we'll, you know, be, continue to put orders in with us. So that's been really great because it gives us hope for other types of waste streams that we were able to collect, you know, what, probably turned out to be hundreds of thousands of avocado pits from local local Chipotle restaurants. And what beautiful colors. I'm wondering, we've got about, oh, three minutes left here, and I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about funding. How did you fund your enterprise? And then, of course, we'll end with our usual question as to how folks might find you. Um, we've had to be very scrappy. I've, uh, dug a lot of things out of the trash to outfit our, uh, initially we were outfitting Green Matters. Um, we had a grant, uh, a $20,000 grant is what launched Green Matters. And, you know, maybe there's a couple, a couple grants along the way, but for the most part, it's been just organic growth and being really scrappy. We don't have investors and it, yeah, we, we just try to grow really slowly and really thoughtfully. and. I hope it's always it is always that way because we're able to grow in the direction we want to, not the direction that the person with the wallet wants us to. Mm-hmm. Where did your grant come from? Who was the source of that grant? Uh, it was a business competition at mm-hmm. Temple University, the Fox School of Business. My uh, I started the business with a partner, and the partner was attending that that university, and so we that we initially pitched. Uh, there. And that's where we got the grant to start the business, which happened right after graduation. Nice. So how might folks find you? Um, The best way to keep in touch with us is Instagram. Uh, We are Green Matters Natural Dye Co. on Instagram. And um, you can watch some of our stories. We like to keep our, you know, post our process, post videos of us working. Uh, So it can be a lot of fun. You should join us there. And I just want to say thank you so much for, number one, taking on this challenge, (laughs) which I'm sure you probably got some pushback on initially, kind of alluded to that a little bit. So thank you so much for your work and for sharing your story here on Heartstock. Of course. Thank you so much, Carol. It's wonderful to be here. Mm. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. We've been speaking with Winona Quigley, and uh, as usual, we shall be back with you next week. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. 
Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Passing, but on the other side.